welcome to the first ever episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where well-known people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Senator David Norris. David is a household name in Ireland and an internationally recognised gay rights campaigner who for 16 years fought to overturn Irish laws which prohibited male homosexual activities, eventually winning a historic victory in the European Court of Human Rights in 1988. The Irish Parliament subsequently decriminalised homosexuality in 1993. David was also the first openly gay person to be elected to public office in Ireland. He ran for presidency in 2011 and his autobiography, A Kick Against the Pricks, was released the following year. David is known for his honesty and his forthrightness. He talks about his life and his work with such incredible passion. He really is the perfect interviewee and he certainly didn't disappoint when we met earlier this month. He talked to me about how he knew he was gay from a very young age, coming out to his best friend in school, being the first openly gay person to be interviewed on Irish TV in 1975, the homophobia he experienced from the Irish media during his presidential campaign, and why the term queer still leaves him feeling very uncomfortable. It was a real honour to interview him, and hopefully you all enjoy it. Please leave a rating or review on iTunes as it really helps me and helps other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. David Norris, welcome to my podcast and thanks for allowing me to interview you. It's a pleasure to be on your programme, Jonathan. Thank you very much. So, David, you are, of course, known as a real pioneer. You're quite a gutsy character in your public life. And from reading your autobiography, which I finished at the weekend, it was a great read. It seems that also extends very much into your personal life because you came out as a teenager to your best friend and you even told him that you loved him. I mean... Oh, I was desperately in love with him. Absolutely. It was a real crush. And it lasted for years and years and years. Uh, When we were all the way through, we were in school and when he was in medical school and a doctor. And then he married an air hostess and went off to Canada. And now you're the godfather. I'm godfather of his extremely handsome older son. And but where did that confidence come as an adolescent? You seem to have a real confidence in who you were. Well, I knew my own feelings, and I knew they were all right. I knew there was, not, there was nothing wrong about them. I mean, society and the church and the law and all the rest of it said, uh, this is wrong, it's criminal, it's deviant, and all the rest of it. But I knew it was all right, and I knew it was good, and I knew it, that my love for David was something that, uh, he was also called David, uh, was, was, was something that really illuminated and enriched my life. And that's what I find really incredible, because usually at an age that a lot of people are struggling to come to terms with it, you, and even in the face of all that opposition from society and from people around you, where did that approval come from? Well, um, my grandmother always taught me to oppose injustice. That was one strong thing. The other thing is, I was the alpha male in our little group. You know, I was the one who was good at rugby and swimming and who initiated all the mischief that we got up to. So I wasn't going to be pushed around by anybody. Quite a strong personality. Yes. And can you remember when you first became aware of what he even meant to be gay? Where did you first come across it? Well, I think I was always gay. Um, And it was kind of 
not very stabilised when I was very young. But by the time I was 10 or 11, I knew perfectly well I was gay. And I was in love with the prefect in school. And I was in love with um, a rugby player and all this kind of stuff. And I, I, I fancied men. It was as simple as that. I mean, I didn't dislike women. In fact, I rather liked them. Got on well with them. Uh, but uh, I wasn't drawn to them in any way, the same way as I was drawn to men. And had you read about homosexuality in books or...? At that stage, no. Well, first of all, can I tell you, I'm 75 years old now, and uh, we're talking about 65 years ago. There was absolutely no mention of homosexuality, whatever. I mean, the Christian churches had seen to that. They described homosexuality as crimen illud horribile non nominandum inter Christianos, that crime so horrible that it must not be mentioned among Christians. And so it wasn't. There was absolutely no mention of it, whatever, not in the newspapers. There were no gay characters in any soap operas or anything. I remember writing to RTE and asking them to put one in, and they laughed like drains at the idea. So there was no mention. It was an unspeakable subject. You couldn't discuss it, you couldn't mention it at all. So there was no there was no there was no discussion of it, whatever. And like most people of my generation, I thought I was the only one. You know, and in fact the Irish Times thought so too, because they used to refer to me as the Irish homosexual, as if there's only one. <laughs> the only gay in the village. Yeah, well I was the first person in Ireland to come out. Yes. You know, I mean there was a gay couple before me, it was Hilton Edwards and Michal MacLeamore. But they were very theatrical and wore makeup and everything. And uh, people didn't really take it seriously that they were gay at all you know so I was the first person who stood up and said I am gay I am homosexual that's it full stop end of story and you did that on RTE in 1975 you did a TV appearance well I did it before that Uh, I joined the campaign for homosexual equality exactly 50 years ago in 1969 and uh, so it was publicly known then well, no, it wasn't publicly known. No, it wasn't. But I joined... In fact, I called myself Alfred J. O'Neill uh, because all my friends told me I'd be subject to blackmail. But I joined that. And then, about 1970, I was one of the founders of the Southern Ireland Civil Rights Association and they were so bloody smug. It got under my fingernails and up my nose and any other orifice I can think of. And there was also a very handsome young Dutchman in the audience. And I thought, mm, how can I raise a flag and say, you, I'm a fairy, how about you? Uh, I got to meet him afterwards and he wasn't gay at all. He was a very, very, very devout Roman Catholic, but I'm still friendly with him. I stood up and I said, you, you don't think you discriminate against anybody, but you do. You discriminate against gay people. I'm gay and I know all about it. So there was a big row and I eventually persuaded them to include reform of the criminal law among their platforms. And that TV appearance that you did in 1975, yes. the producers of the show, they unbelievably asked you to have your back to the camera and they asked you if you wanted to disguise your voice, to which yeah, you Yeah, they suggested that. And I said, no, in that case, I'm not going to do it because the whole point of it is to show that I'm not a monster. And if I'm in shadow, I'm talking like that. Of course they'll think I'm a monster. Scary. You know, it was a dreadful idea. So we did it face to face. And one of the things, Orne O'Connor, who was absolutely beautiful, and she was the girlfriend at that stage of Gabriel Byrne. Uh, She died something tragically of cancer, very young. She asked me, (laughs) she said, you know, the Psychiatric Association says you're sick. Are you sick? And I said, not at all. Of course I'm not. But I I, I mean, I had a cold last week, if that's what you mean. But homosexuality is not a sickness. And for that, the the broadcast was barred. And um, a complaint was made to the Complaints Commission of RT, and they upheld it. 
the that, upheld I, the, the yeah, that I shouldn't have been allowed to say that I wasn't sick. It's quite shocking, isn't it? It's Looking extremely back on shocking. It. And not only that, I subsequently I said, OK, fine, if I'm sick, I'm sick. And I applied for disability benefit. And they wouldn't give it to me. Bastards. So contradicting themselves. Mm. And so when did you make another appearance on RTE then after that? Well, I was quite a lot on the radio. OK. Uh, with, with Gay Byrne. I was on and off television. I remember one occasion I was talking about homosexuality. I think it was prime time or something. And there was a frightful, smug, fat, slug-like priest up at the back. And he was contradicting me and giving me out hell about being gay and all the rest of it. I recognised him subsequently, some years later. It was Father Sean Fortune, the fellow who was raping all the boys down in Wexford. You know, that's the kind of bloody hypocrisy that regrettably has the Roman Catholic Church in the most terrible state now. It's very sad. Yeah, understandably. Yeah, understandably, but it's very sad. It's very hard on the decent priests and nuns. Yeah, it must be. And when you entered into the political arena, did you experience much homophobia at that time from your colleagues? Not an awful lot. There was unconscious homophobia in Trinity, of course, and I was never a promotion until it became a scandal. Uh, but in election terms, yes. I mean, people were very suspicious of me because, you know, uh, I was described as a one-issue candidate. And I said, well, first of all, that certainly isn't true. And secondly, if it is, I have one more issue than any of the other candidates because they have none. But there was a great reluctance to elect me. It took me 10 years and six elections to get elected because at one stage there were three elections in 18 months and then there was a by-election uh, and I stood in all of them. And uh, eventually I got in and since then my vote has just gone up and 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 nowadays I'm elected. Well, I can't predict the future because I will be running in the next election and who knows what will happen. But uh, of recent years I've always topped the poll and become, been first elected. And you've incredible perseverance in the face of all of these challenges and setbacks you always keep on keeping on where does that come from it comes from my fitzpatrick genes my mother was fitzpatrick and they're the only fits that are not norman uh, they're mock yellow fortress because an ancestor of mine was given as a young prince as a guide to saint patrick in 432 a.d at least that's the family legend and they were very very uh, persistent people they fought against the Normans and the English and all the rest of it until 1541, where they made a treaty with Henry VIII, uh, gave up speaking Irish, gave up wearing moustaches, gave up wearing Irish Gaelic trousers, which the kilt was not Irish, it was trousers with leather bands rather than the Irish. And they managed to hold on to the land, and good for them. And part of them were always Roman Catholic, and I have an ancestor we're terribly proud of, who is uh, a Roman Catholic bishop, parents died was very young, adopted by my people who are strict Anglicans, but they knew his parents wanted him brought up Roman Catholic. They brought him up Roman Catholic, sent him to Paris, he became a priest, and he became a bishop, and he started the Brigidine nuns and the Patrician brothers. So you, you put it down to genetics. It's nature, that perseverance. Well, I expect part of it is. Yeah, yeah you, know. you don't have some magic secret formula or anything. No, I certainly don't. <laughs> no, I don't. Not at all. So, Except this. I mean, I think it's important people tell the truth. You know, that they speak their minds. If they know something is right, they should say it. People are too reticent and they go along with the crowd. You know, they're afraid of being called, called eccentric. I glory in being called eccentric. In fact, I was extremely disappointed about 20 years ago when Artie had a programme they devoted to eccentrics and they had a poll about who was Ireland's number one eccentric and I came number two. Who beat you? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I have a kind of a Freudian block against it. Two isn't two, uh, uh, that bad. I oh, I know. But country I out been, of four million. I should have been one. That was the one you wanted to win. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Have they done another poll since? Or I don't know. I you'll don't have to lobby so. them. You'll, yes. have to, you'll have to get on to RTE <laughs> to sort that out. 
So during the presidential election of 2011, you were also on the receiving end of much homophobia from the Irish media. Can you tell me a bit about what form that took? Well, it was absolutely unspeakable. I mean, I knew people in the media business. Uh, who were gay but they were not out of the closet and they told me the kind of things that were being said around the newspaper offices in, in Dublin even and, at that time oh absolutely uh, RTE was committed against me uh, I mean they got comedians to insert jokes about me and all this it was disgusting and I mean the Sun newspaper that bastion of the freedom of the press and all the rest of these nonsensical things they go on about they had a whole front page and two inside pages with an editorial and photographs uh, saying that I had abused the Senate to get passports for lovers. And they put a photograph of myself and a Kurdish friend on it. I had nothing whatever to do with his passport. I didn't know whether he had one or not. It was an outrage. It was absolutely disgraceful and it was completely and utterly homophobic. There were other stories. One unspeakable woman went on RTE deliberately. She'd saved this up because she had a vendetta against me. And uh, she said that I advocated parents having sex with their own children. I've no idea where that came out of, but it was utter, complete and absolute nonsense. But Artie allowed her to repeat it five times without any contradiction or anybody saying, well, hold on a bit, that's a bit hard. No, it was just accepted. And when I raised it with a well-known journalist here, he said, oh, he'd always known her to be extremely accurate. But during the court case, she was declared crackers by her counsel, so she couldn't be properly sued. We sued RTE and as part of the discovery process we got recordings of the original 2001 interview that I did with her against my own better judgment and which she published and they the recordings showed definitively that uh, what she printed was a grotesque distortion of what I had said. So you had a court case over the false stories. I had uh, 10 court cases ten. and you I were won busy. every single one of them. I kept a brave face on it in public, but I was absolutely devastated. And my election campaign team took fright and ran away and left me. Without, I have still to this day to receive one indication from them, to my face or in writing, that they have resigned from my campaign team. So officially they're still on my 2011 campaign team. It was absolutely outrageous. Do you um, not see any of them around? Are political circles not quite small in Dublin? Oh, not at all. No? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch them. But do you ever see... You don't run into them, no? I saw one little shit who um, <laughs> uh, reported for, I think it was the Evening Herald, and he, um, he said hello to me. I didn't know who he was, and the next day he said, Hello, David. I recognised him, and I said, Come here, you little shit. How dare you address me in public? You and your lies cost your newspaper £250,000 after all the good deeds I had done for you. So never speak to me again. Was that cathartic to kind of get that off your chest? No, the next day was cathartic because I saw him again. He was coming down the st main staircase from the door and he saw me and he tripped and he fell over his ass. Right, <laughs> so, so that helped that a bit. That was cathartic. Oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> you see, that's why you need to get a smartphone. You could have filmed the, these things. No, 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 no. <laughs> I won't have anything to do with computers. No, 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 you're not going there. And did the newspapers issue an apology? On not the, at all, of course. No? Did they not have they to do that? Money. When well, they did, but they, they put lose on the case 24... Yeah, they always do it like really, really tiny yeah, article. You need a magnifying absolutely. glass to see it. Absolutely. But let me say it again. I won 10 libel actions against uh, the media, including the newspapers and RTE. It's very scary that those dark forces exist, even in such a small country. And what I would imagine to be a very small media industry in Ireland. Yes. 
Like I, I'd imagine if you heard about it in America or maybe. Well, Britain. I think the kind of headlines that were being suggested was Norris likes it up the arse. That's unbelievable, isn't it, to happen in you know 2011? Yes. If you'd read it maybe in yeah. 1970s, but it's still unacceptable. Well, I, well you wouldn't have been no, as surprised. I, but, I, but I'll tell you something. Uh, I believe that my public crucifixion was what permitted Leo Varadkar to be made Taoiseach because I think people got so disgusted with what was done to me that they didn't try it again. Apart from the Independent, the Independent newspaper went after Leo and did very nasty sort of kind of implications you know we need somebody married and all this kind of stuff and Leo's on his own or with man or whatever it was and just really revolting stuff well even they had were forced to stop it one of the newspaper editors actually said to me that what they were doing to me was payback time for what I did on the defamation bill because the newspaper's editors had conspired with the political leaders here uh, to introduce defamation legislation that would have seriously weakened the position of members of the public who are being libeled and I stood out against it and I used all kinds of American precedents and I don't know what, I was very well briefed for it. And I held it up and I eventually sabotaged it, but they brought it back again in an altered form in the next parliament and got it through. So you were a thorn in their side at the I time? Was, yeah. But I mean, the idea of punishing somebody in a democratic society for doing their legitimate business as a parliamentarian to review legislation it's outrageous yeah, and absolutely belief. undemocratic and they are, they are the ones who dare to talk about freedom of expression what do they do to my freedom of expression so where do you get your news from now well I certainly don't read the newspapers <laughs> I can tell you that is there I, any newspaper you read I don't read any newspaper not no. at all I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend the money on them I sometimes read the Sunday Independent which is the only newspaper that didn't go for me so that's, that's the only one I should be reading now I don't care what you do, I'll tell you what I do. <laughs> None of the left-wing newspapers know. Left-wing newspapers like what? Like The Guardian? They're not really left-wing. No, just masquerading. No, anyway, they're stuff. English. You know, why yeah. would I read them? Oh, of course, yes. I mean, I'm very pro-British. Yeah. But why should I read their bloody newspapers? Yeah, well, I'm, 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 I've abandoned the Irish ones because they were so disgusting. Except for the Sunday Independent. Except for the Sunday <laughs> Independent. But um, the rest of them you could put in a bag and throw them in the Liffey as far as I'm concerned. You'd say you liked Sherry Blair. She was never a fan of, of journalists. I didn't like her either. <laughs> she was a bitch. And she showed no respect for the Queen. She said journalism, uh, I shouldn't repeat it, that it wasn't a, a noble profession. Well, it isn't. So you'd agree with her on that? I certainly would agree with her on that, yes. And you were quoted on the day of the marriage referendum, coming up to four years ago now, as saying very eloquently, I might add, I've spent so much time pushing the boat out <laughs> that I forgot to jump on, and now it's out beyond the harbour on the high seas. But it's very nice to look at. Do you ever see <laughs> young... Do you remember that quote? I do remember yep. it very well. There was one other little bit of a... I could see the little people on the boat waving at me, but it had gone out beyond the harbour. But the reward, because I'm now... I'm 75 and I'm more or less in neutral. You know, I'm not really gay anymore at all. I'm an old neutral faggot. But uh, the reward is about... Uh, about a year ago, I was going across O'Connell Bridge and I saw two lovely, handsome, athletic young men going across the bridge hand in hand. And I thought that was absolutely lovely. And I said to myself, well, that's what it was all for. That's what makes it all worthwhile. Do you ever see people like that now and feel slightly envious? Or do you ever think, oh, I wish I was growing up as a gay man now? You know, wishing it isn't going to make it happen. No, you know? of course but, not. So I do. No, I, I just wish them well and I'm delighted for them. I think it's, I think it's absolutely great. Yeah, it would have been it would have been lovely uh, to have experienced the feelings of, of uh, every young man 
you know, going to tennis club dances and rugby club dances and things like that. So I, I never had that. I was cheated of all that romance of holding hands in the back of the cinema and all this sort of stuff. I never had that. Never will now. So there you are. And then, of course, when the gay movement started off, uh, I mean, I was very promiscuous before that, um, you know, having a very an extremely good time. But once the gay movement started off, I, I became more or less like a nun, uh, you know, because I couldn't afford any scandal. Because if scandal had attached itself to me, it would have brought down the whole gay movement. That's political life, isn't it? It is political life, yes. Yeah. And on the day of the marriage referendum, which felt like the culmination of so much work that you'd done over the years and so much well, work Well, there's an awful lot of other motion. people had done. Yes, yeah. And, and I mean, the person who is forgot is Eamon Gilmore. I mean, Eamon Gilmore from the Labour Party put it on the political agenda over the wishes of Enda Kenny, who was persuaded later, and kept it on the agenda. And I thought that was absolutely wonderful. I know there was a lot of people involved in making it happen and bringing it about. But did you always believe that that day would come? I thought it would come, but I didn't think it would come so soon. And right up to the count, I wasn't sure we'd win at all. Not at all. I didn't. But uh, 10 minutes after they opened the boxes, I went on RTE radio and I, I, I called it. I said, we've won. I knew it. I knew it in my bones. You had a gut feeling. Yes, I had a gut feeling. And the Yes Equality campaign, they were wonderful. They were, they were masterly, the way they handled the campaign. I mean, I made speeches about it and I uh, went did television interviews uh, and so on and so forth. But the other side, everybody said after, oh, they were very good and so on. They were not. They were appalling and they told lies and they misinformed people. And I thought maybe that would take hold. Now, some of their advertising was, um, and some of their posters were, were ridiculous, weren't they? They were. Well, I had to laugh at the poster they had. They put it up all over Gardner Street about the family says no. And, all this. and the, the models for the family contacted the media and said, we were the family. We didn't know what that was about. We we're, were totally in favour of it. Yeah, some of them were very insulting, very upsetting, actually. Yes. And with the rise of the far right in many parts of the world, uh, so I'll ask you an international question now, mm. and the persecution of gay people in Russia and in Uganda, do you feel positive about the future of LGBT rights internationally? Yes, I do. But we will have to overcome people like uh, Vladimir Putin. I would have some question marks about his sexuality, to be quite yeah, honest I would with you. Too. The way he goes round uh, on horseback exposing his shriveled little tits to the world's gaze. It's very Brokeback Mountain. It is very Brokeback Mountain. So you do feel positive about the future of LGBT rights? I do, because as information spreads, I mean, that was what killed off the hold of the Roman Catholic Church here. Yeah. Uh, people got to know the facts. They got to know reality. And you cannot stop that. I mean, particularly now with the World Wide Web or whatever they call it, and all these uh, digitalized information systems and so on and so forth, people are going to find out what the reality is. I mean, even Greece. I mean, Greece, the government in Greece for years has been homophobic. I mean, the country that, you know, celebrated. And the bloody Olympic Games. Uh, they started the Gay Olympics. Some doctor who had a gold medal from an Olympic Games started... And they sued him to stop him using the word Olympic because it was gay. I mean, where the fuck did they think it came from? In the first place, it was the admiration of the male body by the audience at the Greek Games. Of course it was. It was absolutely ridiculous. And I mean, Plato's Symposium was all about love. It's the basis of a large part of our uh, Western ideas of, of, of spiritual love and all that. And it was all about gay men. All of it. 
And the Greeks have a huge problem with it now. Yeah, they do, yeah. It's and pretty barmy, isn't it? I, I brought this up when we had a delegation from Iran here. And unfortunately, it was the day that Brian Lenehan died. So we were in private session. We weren't in public session, which was a pity. Uh, because the Iranians went off at a half cock about gay rights and so on. And I, I, I spoke to them and I, I said, uh, mentioned the symposium. And some fellow said, oh, I have a degree in this, I have a PhD in it. Um, uh, Plato wasn't gay and the symposium had nothing to do with homosexuality. Completely ignorant, but he was cheered and applauded by my colleagues at that stage. They believed him, they took his word. They didn't believe him, they didn't give a shit, they just saw me being kicked. Oh, okay. And they enjoyed that. It's very like playground behaviour, isn't it? It is extremely like playground behaviour. Yeah. And I'm sure you've already heard of the disputes between some parents protesting against the inclusion of LGBT lessons in the school curriculum in Birmingham and in other areas of England. So in in spite of the great advances made in LGBT rights in much of the Western world, is the fact that this kind of opposition still exists, is that surprising to you? It's very English. It's extremely English. I mean, they had Clause 28 and all this oh, kind yes, of Margaret stuff. Oh, yes, Margaret Thatcher's. Margaret Thatcher, old bitch. It, it, it is very English. I mean, the, the non- notion that people, uh, by giving them information, which will be of use to the minority of students who are gay and will be a lifeline for them, that that would affect the sexuality of their children is absolute nonsense. I mean, I, I got complaints... Uh, when I was lecturing in Trinity because Ian Forster died, I think, in 1970. And it came out that he was gay and that he'd written a gay novel and all this kind of stuff, which he never admitted during his lifetime. And I seized on that because I was lecturing on Ian Forster at the time. And suddenly that was a revelation. It explained uh, the development of plotline, the the portrayal of character, uh, the use of language, all these things. It was central to any understanding of Forster. And I gave lectures on that. And uh, a parent complained to the provost, and the basis of it was not that I was a bad teacher, but in fact that I was a very good teacher, and I might be a kind of a pattern for their little Johnny. But I said to the provost, well, I was educated by people who were supposed to be heterosexual, didn't rub off on me. And so a parent complained about their student child in Trinity. Yes. That's unbelievable. So the child, so the, they were pretty much an adult. They were an adult, yeah, absolutely. And the, the parents were still interfering. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but their logic is pretty crazy, isn't it? it if is. that was the case, there would hardly be any gay people no. because most gay people, myself included, were unaware of what homosexuality was growing up. Yeah. So if you apply their logic to it, yeah. I should really be straight. Of course you would. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, I'm very much not. So in recent years, Q has been added to the term LGBT. So I read in your book that you are not entirely comfortable with the label queer. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? No, I'm not at all comfortable. I will not be called queer. I am not queer. I never have been queer and I will not ever be queer. Young people can do what they like. They can call themselves. I don't give a damn what they call themselves. But I am not queer. I am gay. Simple. Uh, are homosexual, are a fairy. <laughs> I don't mind any of these things. But no, queer was an extremely offensive term that was used to suggest that we were disordered and we were dangerous and we were sinister and all this. And I will not have it. I just won't have it. And all this stuff came from these bloody academics. Queer theory, my whole. The, you know, they, they, they never took part in the fight. They never took part in the fight. They were still in the closet when it was all going on. And there was blood on the streets. 
but then they come out of their little academic cubbyhole and everything has to be queer. Not for me, darling. No, thank you. I won't do it. So a lot of people of your generation feel the same about that word because it's got do. very, very negative, negative connotations. connotations. Absolutely. Yeah. All this endless adding to it. LGBTQIRSWP DXY whatever it is. You know, it's too much of it. In my day, it was gay. It was nice and simple. Uh, and, uh, you know, even putting lesbian in front of it. I mean, it was a gay movement. And the women at that stage, were the few of them that turned up, because there were very few, were content to be included in, in the gay, you know, the, the, the gay movement was a gay movement. I have no idea why they insist on putting lesbian first. There was a time when it was GLBT, was it? No, I don't think so. I, I don't know. I can't remember. It just, it, was it just purely, it had a ring to it or? Uh, no, no, it was sucking up to the women. You know, I mean, some men, uh, including some gay men, think that we've got to grovel to women uh, for some reason, that women were oppressed and all this stuff, which they probably were, but nothing like the same extent that gay men were. Uh, and I, I, as I say, I tell the truth. It may be uncomfortable for some people, but that's just too bad. But I don't care, it doesn't matter. I still refer to it as gay. So obviously many people look up to you as a very inspiring force. Oh dear. So, do you not think so? Well, I hope not. I, don't I saw you the other day on, you were on the cover of this book I saw on Waterstones in London. I don't know if you're really? aware of it or not. It was The Children of Harvey Milk. Have you seen that yet? I have. You have seen that, yeah. It's not entirely accurate. No, I didn't get to actually uh, uh, read it. Was, is, should I uh, take a look at it or...? Well, I have a look at it in a bookshop, but don't pay for it. No, okay. So who are the people who inspire you yourself? Well, the late Dr. Noel Brown was an inspirational figure. I don't know, you probably have never heard of him. But he was Minister for Health in 1950 to 51. Uh, he eradicated TB in this country, and for which people all over the island absolutely loved him. He introduced the mother and child scheme, which would give free maternal care without... Um, limits, you know, whatever the testing for, for limits, whatever they call that. And he was just a wonderful idealistic man. He was the first person to raise the issue of homosexuality in the Irish Parliament, for which he was laughed out of the doll. But he was extremely courageous and a very fine, wonderful man. And he always used to nominate me for the Senate. Uh, on the last occasion, uh, I went down and got the post and opened it up. And there was an envelope from Noel. Uh, with a shaky handwriting, wishing me the best wishes and signing the nomination papers. And I switched on the uh, nine o'clock news and the first thing was the announcement of Noel's death. So the hardest thing I had to do was to tip X out his name uh, on the nomination paper. And you tell that story in the book as well. Do I? It rings a bell. I've yeah, heard it before. I, I, I forget what yeah. I said in the book. No, I'm pretty sure it's in there. I suspect it is, yes. Is there anyone else who you really admire? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Mary Robinson, I think she's wonderful. Uh, she has been a, a leading force in every campaign for human rights in this country. I mean, not just my case, Mrs. McGee uh, on the right to contraception, uh, the right for women to sit on juries. And then she went on to become um, UN Human Rights Commissioner, where she did a remarkable job. And finally, she is now leading the campaign on environmental rights. And I'd also put in Mary McAleese another Trinity person who was the president of Ireland. A great, a great, marvellous woman. She's doing a lot of LGBT campaigning now, isn't she? Yes, she is. But before she had her children, 
and I know one of them is gay and people say that's the reason for her commitment. No, it isn't, because she was the co-chairman with me of the campaign for homosexual law reform uh, in the 19, early 1970s, before any of her children were born. So she's been working on it for quite some time. Yes, she has. And there weren't too many people around at that stage who were prepared to, to uh, acknowledge uh, the, the rightness of the cause. I mean, the campaign for homosexual law reform, uh, which she and I were both involved in, I founded it. It consisted of about less than half a dozen people, some headed notepaper, and a half a file, half a drawer in a filing cabinet in my office in Trinity. Uh, and I got the headed notepaper done. I got people like Noel Brown, like Hugh Leonard, the playwright, like Dean Victor Griffin, St. Patrick's Cathedral, and so on and so forth, to act as patrons. And they were listed on the notepaper, for which we were roundly denounced by the Catholic right as an international conspiracy funded by Jewish money from New York. It was absolutely wonderful. It made us feel 10 feet tall. Uh, the idea that we were an international conspiracy when all we had was half a filing cabinet. When it was just a little small operation. Yeah, it was great. And just a question that popped into my head now. Is there any LGBT culture that you're enjoying at the moment? Do you ever watch Will and Grace or Drag Race or I any of those shows? I saw Will and Grace recently. I don't frightfully like drag, to be honest with you. I mean, Panty's fine. Yes. Uh, and, and a very clever person. Uh, so many of those drag queens are car- grotesque caricatures. Uh, and they specialise in selecting members of the audience and humiliating them. And I don't like that at all. I don't think that's entertainment. Like some stand-up comics do. Yes, they do. And I don't like that either. No favourite stand-up comics, no. No. I, I loved Tommy Cooper. You know, do you remember Tommy Cooper? Yes, yeah, I remember him. He used to have a hat on. Yeah, and he, he died on stage, live on television. It was a wonderful way to go. So I like him. I liked the Golden Girls. Become a real classic, hasn't it? The yeah, Golden Girls. Yeah, it's wonderful. And finally, David, and what are your plans for the future? Well, I've already planned my funeral. I've heard about that, and you've got a lot of thought put into it, haven't I you? Yeah, have, yes, absolutely. It's going to be wonderful. So you're working on that show with RTE at the moment, aren't you? Uh, yeah, well, I've finished it. Finished it. So my, my plans are to stay in politics for the next couple of years, at least, uh, to get various things finished. I mean, we managed to save the Senate. I mean, Enda Kenny tried to get rid of it. And I was in hospital. Fergal Quinn and Catherine Zappone took over the leadership of this fight and they wouldn't let anybody else near it. And they were losing it hand over fist. And I discharged myself from hospital and came in in a taxi and I said, get off the stage. You know, you're, you're losing this for us. Uh, and within two weeks, uh, John Crown, Sean Barrett, Senator, um, and myself turned around. I went on every local radio station and I put out tweets one of which was re- re- repeated 1.5 million times. And the Irish Times did an article about it was the most successful use of technology in an election, in a referendum. And you can't even switch on a computer. No, and I don't <laughs> intend to. Well, David, it's been really great chatting to you. Uh, a real honour to interview someone who has led the way for LGBT rights and affected so much real change for people in this country. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, George.